Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, there's only two ways to learn something. You can learn something from your own experience, or you can learn something from someone else's experience. And you don't have enough time to learn everything from your own experience. You've got to learn from others. That's why you have to read. If you want to be a leader, you got to be a reader. You've got to learn from other people's experience and knowledge in order to go beyond your own. Of course, reading the scriptures is God's revelation to us, but you have to read it to know it. And uh, the same is true with other books that give us truth. I just thought I'd say that as we're about to enter a new year into 2019. Make it a resolution that you'll follow through on that you should read more. And many of the books that uh, we recommend here by having the authors on the program are books you ought to read. In recent weeks, we've had Fuzz Ron on, we've had you Ross on, uh, we've, had, uh, we've had Bill Federer on, the great historian. Uh, we're going to have other guests coming up on as well. We've had Dr. Michael Brown. I, I've got to look back at the podcast to see who we've had this year. We've had Ed Fazer, his book on the five proofs of the existence of God. I mean, there's so many books out there and so little time. We're not going to necessarily talk about a book today. We're going to talk about some questions that you've sent me, uh, and many of them, of course, are answered in books, these questions. Here's a question I got from Mike in New Jersey. How do you deal with people who mock Christianity and keep moving from objection to objection without listening? Another question came in. What do you say to someone who says, it's true for you, but not for me? Another question. Christianity is only 2,000 years old. What about all the people who lived before them? Basically, what about those who've never heard? And another question that came in probably uh, last month at some point, maybe a month before that, I haven't had an opportunity to get to. It's a big question. And the question is, what do you say to people who say there are more than two genders? Because some people are born intersexed. Now, if you want to submit a question, ladies and gentlemen, and by the way, these are the questions we're going to try and get to today. Maybe we'll fold another question or two in there if we have time. You need to send us an email at hello at crossexamine.org. Hello at crossexamine.org. I try and get to every question I can. Unfortunately, I can't get to all of them. But I normally pick a few out when I have no guest on to try and answer here on the program. So send us an email at hello at crossexamine.org. Let's start with Mike in New Jersey. Here's what Mike says. I've had a hard time lately with skeptic criticism. I feel like most skeptics don't want a dialogue. They just want to assert terrible arguments and put down Christians. I see this all over the Internet. Just look at, at the comments under any pro-Christian YouTube video, blog, post, or Twitter message. And let me stop right there before I continue with Mike. I, I did a program, must be probably one of the podcasts back uh, eight or nine years ago now. We've been on doing this podcast probably 11 or 12 years, this radio program here on the American Family Radio Network. And I remember reviewing a a YouTube comments from the debate that William Lane Craig had with Hitchens and the debate that I had with Hitchens. I said two debates with Hitchens. Anyway, I reviewed what some of the atheists and skeptics said 
about William Lane Craig and about myself. And 99 times out of 10, as my friend Richard Howe would say, <laughs> 99 times out of 10, the comments were all ad hominem comments. In other words, they were all uh, insults rather than a a counter argument to what I or Dr. William Lane Craig had said in the debate. And I've noticed that this is very prevalent, and this is what Mike is saying, that many of the atheists and skeptics out there, and unfortunately probably some Christians do this as well, they insult the other person rather than dealing with the question, rather than giving a counter argument. Now, Christians, if you're doing that, you need to stop that. And atheists, if you're saying that, that you think you have a better argument or there's better reasons to believe that that atheism is true or Christianity's false or whatever, then bring an argument. Don't bring an insult. Anyway, let me continue with Mike's question. He says, they, meaning the atheists or skeptics, presuppose that belief in God is the same as belief in mythical creatures. You know, they'll say Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, all that. It's very discouraging. My question is that at what point do I stop engaging these folks, stop reading the comments, and move on? And he says, ask the question, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Merry Christmas, Mike from New Jersey. Yeah, Mike, I think you're on it. I think that's what you need to say. Look, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And probably 99 times out of 10, these same people who are putting insults on the Internet will say no, because it's not an intellectual issue with them. It's an emotional, volitional, or moral issue. They don't want it to be true. Why don't they want it to be true? Many times it's because they don't want there to be a God because they want to be God. They want to be God of their own lives, as I've said many times on this program. It was, it was Pascal who said, people almost invariably base their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. They don't want it to be true. They just find it attractive that there's no moral authority over themselves. And, and unfortunately, this cuts both ways because some Christians just believe in Christianity because they find it attractive that they think there's a God up there looking over them and they're going to see their loved ones in heaven and all this, right? The question isn't whether, or not what you, isn't whether or not what you find attractive. That's not the issue. The issue is, is it true? And so you've got to bring arguments for that, not insults. So yes, Mike, I think you're, you're right to ask the question, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Or you might preface that by saying, why are you not a Christian? Maybe before you ask the if Christianity were true question, why not just ask, why are you not a Christian? And, and probably most of the time, you're going to get an answer that really has nothing to do with the core of Christianity. It, it doesn't. Oh, there's too much evil in the world. Look, Christianity doesn't say there is an evil. In fact, the, the whole Christian story is the, is, the, is the response to evil, the solution to evil. You wouldn't need Christianity unless there, unless there was evil in the world. If we weren't evil. You wouldn't need it. So <laughs> it, it, a lot of people will say that. It's too much evil in the world. Or such and such happened to me, and I can't believe in a good God. You know, same. That, 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 doesn't, that doesn't strike at the core of Christianity. In fact, it affirms the Christian worldview that this world has fallen and needs a Savior and needs redemption. Now, by the way, this, there's another problem with this, of course, is it's very difficult to get accurate survey data on why people leave the Christian faith or don't believe in Christianity. Why? Because most people are not going to admit that it's really their own will that keeps them out of the kingdom. They're not going to admit that. They're, they want to sound more reasonable, more rational. So they'll say, well, there's intellectual problems, or I believe in evolution, or... or uh, or the evil question, or they're never going to say it's because I just don't want God to exist. So it's really hard to get survey data on it, honest survey data. I think just from the people I've spoken with, and I know it's anecdotal, but that's about the only data you can get at this point because survey data isn't probably going to be accurate because people aren't going to be honest. I think probably the best, 
the, the best we can go on is just dealing with people and see if they truly have a intellectual volitional or emotional slash moral problem with Christianity. What is the real issue? And I've asked this question before, as I've mentioned. Think of somebody you know who's not a Christian. A friend, relative, whoever it is. Is the person you're thinking of right now who's not a Christian, are they on a relentless pursuit of truth? Do they want to know if Christianity is true or not? Or are they apathetic or hostile? Again, most of the people I survey will say they're apathetic or hostile. That's probably a better gauge of where people are than asking them directly. Just observe them and see if they really are searching. Now, obviously, there are people that are searching, but most of the people really aren't. <laughs> they, don't want, they don't care. They're either apathetic or they're against you. They're hostile. So, Mike, if they're hostile, just love the person and move on to somebody else. We've got limited time here. Jesus said this in a context of uh, sending the 70 out to these different towns. You know, if they, if they reject you, dust the, kick the sandals off your, or the dust off your sandals and move on to the next town. Doesn't mean you can't continue to be a friend with them. But don't keep talking about the issue if they're just going to keep moving the goalposts every time something, every time you say something. Or I, 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 mean, you, I know you've had these conversations with people. It certainly happens a lot on the Internet where you ask them a question and uh, you start to answer it. Before you're done answering the question, they're moving on to the next objection because they don't really care about the answer. With those kinds of people, you just got to love them, pray for them, and move on. You've got limited time, so deal with other folks. And by the way, the internet is a very bad place to, to dialogue with people, I found, because people are just entrenched in their position. They don't want to lose face. It's better to do it personally. Anyway, I'm Frank Turek. We're back in two minutes, and so I'll go away. We're back with the final program of 2018. Now, if you're listening to this program later on, this is going to be what we call an evergreen program. We try and make most of our programs evergreen. What, is that? What, is, what do I mean by that? We're not spending a lot of time talking about current events, although we may fold a comment or two in here. We're talking about these eternal questions. So anytime you listen to this podcast, I hope it is relevant to you. Every once in a while, yeah, we will talk about a current event, but most of the time, no, we're talking about these issues that are evergreen, that uh, are going to be relevant today and 10 years from now and 20 years from now. Uh, by the way, uh, you're listening to Cross-Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Our website, crossexamined.org. By the way, if you haven't done your final end year-end year giving, um, we covet any... That's not the right word to use, is it? <laughs> covet, yeah, we're not supposed to do that. What I mean is we appreciate any uh, donations you give us, and I want to mention that 100% of your donations go to ministry, 0% to buildings. Let me say that again. 100% to ministry, 0% to buildings. The people that work for crossexamine.org, we all work out of our homes. We're even in different cities, and uh, we don't think that you ought to be paying for uh, an office somewhere because it's not necessary in today's internet uh, day and age. You, you, you don't need to be in the same place. So we spend all of our all of your donations uh, trying to reach young people, uh, mostly on college campuses, high school campuses, and in churches, uh, through the internet, through social media. In fact, I'll tell you more about that a little bit later in the program. But we also have a, a matching program at the end of the year. We had a donor say, hey, any donation up to twenty grand, I will match dollar for dollar. So if you will do that, if you will give here in at crossexamine.org, click on donate. You can send us a check or you can also donate securely online. 
any donation you give will be doubled up to 20000 So that's a good deal. Anyway, let me go back to another question I had. It was another question uh, related to uh, somebody uh, who is an atheist. This gentleman writes, I hope I'm doing this right. I have an atheist friend with whom I debate almost weekly about Christianity. I remembered to ask your question, if Christianity were proven true, would you become a Christian? Actually, the question is, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Anyway, he responded, no. He said, I'm now at a loss as to what to even say without pushing me away further. I love this guy. What do I do? Well, what you do is just continue to love him. But it's not an intellectual issue. So giving him answers to questions he doesn't have isn't going to help him. Just love the person. And hopefully at some point, the person's going to have a need that only you can fill as a Christian. Sometimes people go through difficulty or tragedy. When that happens, your phone will ring and that person will be on the other end. They're not going to call um, an atheist friend when something goes wrong in their lives because the atheist is going to say, well, look, there's no rhyme or reason. This stuff just happens. They're going to call you a person of spiritual depth. Then they might be open to Christianity. A lot of people come to Christ through pain and difficulty, through suffering and difficulty. No, I'm not necessarily, don't get me wrong, I'm not wishing this on the individual. Well, I do wish that they become a Christian, but I'm not wishing unnecessary pain or suffering on somebody. Uh, sometimes, though, pain and suffering is necessary to bring somebody to Christ. And that's the most important thing, that they come to Christ and have their sins forgiven and join the kingdom for eternity. All right, another question. Good morning, Dr. Turk. Yesterday I had a discussion with a friend who was a postmodernist. Well, there's his first mistake. He believes in the statement, it's true for you, but not for me. Now, stop, let's stop right there, ladies and gentlemen. You've been listening to this show long enough. If somebody says it's true for you, but not for me, what do you say? You say, is that true for everybody? Is the statement true for you, but not for me, true for everybody? Because if true for you, but not for me is true for everybody, then true for you, but not for me can't be true because it's true for everybody. Did you guys follow that? Yeah, it's a self-defeating statement to say it's true for you, but not for me. Anyway, this guy went on to say, I pulled up the cross-examined app and showed him the example of the customer and the bank teller. What do I say to people is this. You can use this. You could, you could say by example that true for you, but not for me can't be true. Because if you go to your bank teller and say, look, I'd like $100,000 out of my account. And the bank teller says, I'm sorry, you only have $6.14 in your account. You're not going to get the money if you say, well, that's just true for you, true for you but not for me. Give me the hundred grand." No, it's not, it doesn't work that way. So this uh, questioner asked this postmodernist or gave him this example. And the postmodernist said, well, the customer and the bank teller are both absolute in their truth. Okay. <laughs> First of all, this uh, response is confused in many ways. This gentleman is confusing confidence with truth. Okay. He's confusing the fact that somebody may be absolutely confident that they're right and the fact that they're really wrong. Yeah, you can be absolutely confident that you're right when you're really wrong. And you can be only tentatively confident that you're right when you really are absolutely, objectively right. Okay, so he's confusing confidence with truth. Um, the gentleman who's asking the question went on to say of the postmodernist, the postmodernist believes that absolute truth is found within oneself. Uh, and relative truth is found from outside oneself. Well, it seems to me he has it exactly opposite. The objective truth is outside yourself. Whether or not you like chocolate or vanilla ice cream is subjective. It's inside of you. But whether or not there's a bowl of, uh, of vanilla or chocolate ice cream in front of you, that's an objective truth. That's outside of you. All right? So if somebody says something like this, again, you don't necessarily have, necessarily have to refute what they say. They have to support what they say. So if someone says, uh, well, relative truth is found outside of oneself, I would ask, what do you mean by that? 
What do you mean it's found outside yourself? It seems that you have it backwards. Objective truth has a referent outside of oneself. For example, the claim it's wrong to torture babies for fun is true, even if everyone in their own minds thinks it's false. It's really wrong to torture babies for fun. By the way, it's really wrong to kill six million Jews. Even if the Nazis had won World War II and brainwashed everybody to think that killing Jews was right, it would still be wrong. Why? Because the referent is outside of society. The referent is God's nature when it comes to a moral claim. It's not inside of us, although we, we understand it because it's inside ourselves in the sense that we have this moral law written on our hearts. It has to, it has to get inside ourselves for us to know it. But the, the referent of moral truth Moral value is outside of ourselves. It's, it's God's nature. The same way that the ice cream is outside yourself, and it's true that if there really is a bowl of vanilla ice cream in front of you, that's objectively true, whether you believe it or not. It's true that there's an objective referent outside of ourselves, a moral referent, i.e. God's nature. Uh, the same thing is true when it comes to math. 2 plus 2 equals 4, even if everyone thinks it's false. And so what we're arriving at here is another confusion of this postmodernist, the confusion between epistemology and ontology. And we've talked about this quite a bit before. Epistemology is how you know something. Ontology is the study of being, of the thing you're trying to know. For example, it's ontologically true that a bowl of vanilla ice cream is in front of you if it really is. In other words, there's, there's this this thing called vanilla ice cream in front of you. How you know that epistemologically is, is another question. And, and the confusion often comes in when people try and confuse epistemology and ontology. For example, we might say that earlier on when the individual said that um, the customer, how did he put it? The customer and the bank teller are both absolute in their truth. He's confusing confidence with truth. He's confusing how he knows the bank tellers in front of him. That's epistemology. With that, the bank teller is in front of him. That's ontology. There's a real being in front of him called the bank teller. So when you confuse these two things, postmoderns, uh, or postmoderns typically confuse these things, and even many atheists confuse these things, even though they're not, in many cases, postmodernists. In fact, Michael Shermer continually confused epistemology and ontology when we had both of our debates. One was on whether morality is grounded in God or science, and the other was uh, a question of what better explains reality itself, theism or atheism. He kept talking about how we know certain things. That's epistemology. We can talk about that all day, but that's not the question. The question is ontologically what exists, God or no God? Objective morality or no objective morality? Those are ontological questions. And that's why philosophy, by the way, is so important. So anyway, uh, and by the way, whenever a postmodernist says, like for example, the postmodernist in this example says, the customer and the bank teller are both absolute in their truth. You could ask that postmodernist, is that an absolutely true statement? Because that doesn't comport with postmodernism. See, the postmodernist is making objective truth claims when he says there are no objective truth claims. As soon as he opens his mouth and makes a claim, he's saying it's objectively true, or he's implying it's objectively true, but the entire postmodern project 
says there are no objective truths, which, of course, is self-defeating because it, it claims that that's objectively true. I know, I know this can give you intellectual constipation. This is why, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the, the, the ability to turn a claim on itself, to recognize when people are violating the law of non-contradiction is, in my view, the most important thinking skill you can learn. This is why we spend two chapters on it in I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. We call it the roadrunner tactic, turning the claim on itself. It's why the entire, practically the entire book, Stealing from God, uses this tactic to turn the claim on itself. Because postmodernists and atheists exempt themselves from their own theories. They say there is no objective truth, the postmodernists do. Well, is that objectively true? Atheists will say things like, well, um, consciousness is an illusion. Well, you don't think your consciousness is an illusion. You think it's really telling you the truth about reality. You're exempting yourself from your own theories. And so you've got to call people on that. All right, let's move on to another question. This comes from Luann, who says, My son's girlfriend is very much into science. And she says, that's one reason your podcast interests me. She has asked me uh, three questions I can't answer. Actually, they collapsed into two. I put them into two because really two of the questions were the same question. Anyway, she says, I've called three ministries. They only recommend books, but they don't answer the question specifically. Well, Luann... <laughs> I, 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 a lot of times you want a short answer, I get that, but some questions are very complicated and you'd need to read a book or at least they'd read it, re, need to read a chapter in a book to really get a robust answer. So sometimes reading is unavoidable. That's why I said at the top of the show, I'm sorry, sometimes you can only learn either from your, well, there's only two ways to learn, from your own experience or someone else's experience. And to learn from someone else's experience, you either have to talk to them at length or read what they've written. And so... I understand why ministries recommend books, uh, and sometimes you just got to read the book. But anyway, she says, I feel like I'm letting God down by not having answers. And the first question this, uh, this skeptic has, who's her son's girlfriend, is this. She says, there weren't three people to confirm Jesus existed. Now, if someone ever says that to you, again, let's go back to Greg Kokel's tactics. The first question you want to ask when somebody says... There weren't three people to confirm Jesus existed is what do you mean by that? And the second question is how did you come to that conclusion? In other words, what evidence do you have for that position? And we'll get to the third question you need to ask right after the break. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turk on the American Family Radio Network, our website, crossexamine.org. By the way, I haven't mentioned this much yet, but we're going on a footsteps of Paul Cruz. From Rome to Athens in April. If you want to be a part of that, go to our website, crossexamine.org. The banner will will click up right there. Click on the banner, and you can see the details. Hope to see you out out there in that footsteps of Paul Cruz. Back in two minutes. Don't go away. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Frank Turek. Have you noticed that I try and cram too much into every program? Uh, I'm sorry for that. I'm just enthusiastic about this stuff. I started to tell you about the uh, footsteps of Paul Cruz in April that were going on. If you go to our website, crossexamine.org, you'll see, you'll see we're, we'll obviously go to Rome. We'll spend a few days in Rome, then get on the ship. Then we're going to hit places like Crete, Santorini, Rhodes, Mykonos, Athens, and of course Corinth, which is my favorite spot on the footsteps of Paul Cruz. Why? Because when you go to Corinth, you're standing right where the Apostle Paul stood. There's no modern city built over it. You're there at, you know, in, in ancient ruins. Uh, same thing is true in Athens, by the way. So uh, you want to be on this cruise. The, the 
book of Acts will come to life, as well as uh, many of the epistles written by Paul that are are co. Um, what's the word I'm looking here? Uh, word I'm looking for here? They're uh, they're they're congruent with the book of Acts. As the book of Acts is being written, written and describing where Paul's going and what he's doing, he's writing these these epistles that you read about so much, like Ephesians and Philippians and Romans and others. So you really learn quite a bit by going and seeing these places that Paul is writing to and the places that Paul visited. Uh, it's like going to Israel. It's just the book of Acts really comes to life, whereas when you go to Israel, the rest of the Bible comes to life because the rest of the Bible is based mostly in Israel. So this is just an amazing trip. We haven't done the footsteps of Paul Cruz in a while, uh, probably four or five years. So we're going back there, and then in 2020, we'll go back to Israel with my uh, good friend and archaeologist, Eli Shukran. So uh, check out the website and uh, crossexamine.org. If you want to get information on this via the phone, call 888-771-8717, 771 8717. The great folks at Living Passages take care of all the logistics of the trip. And uh, if you call them there at 888, easy for me to say, 888-771-8717, you can learn more about the trip. All right, let's go back to these questions we've been talking about. Uh, The lady called in and said, well, there weren't three people to confirm Jesus existed. Actually, she wrote to me and said, this is my Son's girlfriend, she has this objection. So you say, how did you come to that conclusion? There are only three people. There, are, there weren't three people to confirm Jesus existed. Obviously, that is not true. What you might say is, is have you ever considered, that's the third question that you should ask after you ask, what do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? You ask, have you ever considered that there are eight or nine mostly Jewish writers who confirm Jesus existed? And there are 10 ancient non-Christian sources that within 150 years of Jesus' life that confirm he existed. Not to mention the early church fathers. Now, obviously the early church fathers weren't eyewitnesses, but the eight or nine, mostly Jewish writers, either were eyewitnesses or interviewed eyewitnesses. Why do I say eight or nine? Well, they're all Jews with the exception of Luke. And we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. So... There is either seven or eight Jewish writers and one Gentile writer, depending upon who wrote the book of Hebrews, because obviously the writer of the book of Hebrews was Jewish. Uh, and and they're, they're eyewitnesses or they interviewed eyewitnesses. So we certainly have much more support than the claim that there weren't three people to confirm Jesus existed. I mean, even the skeptic Bart Ehrman, pleads with atheists and skeptics to stop saying Jesus never existed. In fact, Ehrman wrote a whole book on why Jesus did exist. And he's an atheist, or an agnostic leading atheism. And then, of course, you have the existence of the church, which emerged out out of Judaism in Jerusalem, which would have never happened for an empirical claim like the resurrection. Because everyone knew where Jesus' tomb was. And they could have squashed Christianity by taking his dead body out of the tomb, and they couldn't do that. So the claim that there weren't three people people to confirm Jesus existed is just false, okay? The second question is, Christianity is only 2,000 years old, but there were people that lived long before that. Where was God for them, and why doesn't the Bible ever talk about that? Well, first of all, notice this is a moral question. It seems to be implying that if God really did exist, he would get people revelation before Jesus came, 
and, uh, and he'd give them an opportunity to be saved. Well, as an atheist, there's no objection that you can bring that's objective against this because there is no objective right or wrong unless God exists. But it is a fair question for an atheist to ask, to say something like, well, you're saying your God is a loving God. If he is a loving God, why wouldn't he reveal himself earlier to people who lived before Christ? That's a fair question, to, to, because it seems to be a problem for our worldview. And the answer to that is, he did reveal himself prior to Christ. Not the complete revelation, but there are two books written by God, and everybody has the first book. What's the first book? It's the book of nature, general revelation. Everybody has creation and conscience. Everyone knows there's got to be a creator because there's a creation. Everyone knows that this creator is moral because there's a moral law written on our hearts. Everyone knows that there is a creator God. Everyone already knows that. There's nobody who's never heard that. Now, many people haven't heard of Jesus. Even to, even to this day, they haven't heard of Jesus. So what do we say about that? And for this, for a more robust answer, you do need to get a book. Or you do need to go to, William Lane Craig has a great answer on this on his website, reasonablefaith.org. But let me give you the very short answer. Obviously, people were saved prior to Christ by the, by the sacrifice of Christ, even though they hadn't heard of him yet, even though it hadn't come yet. Uh, it says, Paul even says, the gospel was pre- preached to Abraham. By trusting in Yahweh, they were saved. Now, it seems that the New Testament says you have to know the name of Jesus since then in order to be saved. That's why we risk all to get people the gospel. Is it possible that God could save people even though they don't know Jesus' name? Of course it's possible. It's possible in the Old Testament. It's possible now. But the scripture seems to indicate that, no, you need to know the name. That's why we risk all to get people the gospel. You say, well, a lot of people haven't heard it. What about them? Well, we know that there are people that hear the gospel who don't believe it, right? It could be that people who never hear the gospel wouldn't have believed it anyway. That's certainly possible. In fact, Paul in Romans, not Romans, in Acts chapter 17 seems to indicate this. When he says that God appointed the times and seasons when people should live or appointed the exact times when they should live so that some will find him even though God is not far from us. I'm paraphrasing. It's, it's uh, Acts 17, 23, somewhere in there, the 20s. In other words, Paul is saying, that God appoints when people will, will live. And, and so people will find them. It could be that people who, who never hear the name of Jesus wouldn't have believed it anyway. That's certainly possible. That's what it seems to indicate in, in Acts 17. But we don't, know that for sh- we don't know that for sure. What we do know is that the gospel does save, so we, we get people the gospel. What we also know is since God is just, and he is the standard of justice and love, and that God wants people to be saved even more than we do, that all the people who could be saved will be saved because God is loving. So you don't have to worry that God is somehow going to be unfair because by definition he can't be unfair. He is the standard of fairness and justice and love. So we rest that in God's nature, he is going to be both just and loving. Now, if he's completely just and not loving, then none of us are going to make it. If he's equally just and loving, then the only way he can provide a solution for us is by putting the punishment on somebody else. So who does he put it on? He puts it on himself, Jesus, who comes in the flesh. He's 100% man and 100% God. He's the only one that could bridge the gap between God and man. So, Luann, great question. Uh, You can get more on that uh, by... A reading, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist if you want to go much further with your with your son's 
girlfriend, but I would ask her the question, first of all, why are you not a Christian? And then secondly, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Now, let's go to a much more sensitive question, and that is the question about transgenderism. And the question came in uh, via email. It said this, what do you say to people who say there are more than two genders? Because some people are born intersexed. And by the way, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Uh, let me say this. First of all, everyone is important, according to the Christian worldview. Everyone is made, everyone is made in the image of God. Uh, so everyone's important. Don't get me wrong here. But this condition is something that affects a minuscule percentage of people, far less than 1%. And this used to be called a birth defect. Now, that may sound offensive to some, but the language is simply recognizing the truth that the condition is rare and is the result of an incomplete or interrupted biological or chemical process. In other words, something didn't turn out right from a biological perspective. It didn't turn out the way it should have turned out. The language, when people say it's a birth defect, doesn't suggest a moral deficiency, but a biological one something that the patient had no control over. So there should be no shame or stigma attached to it. This is why I love what Rick Warren said several years ago, tragically, when his, his, uh, his son uh, committed suicide. His son had uh, a mental issue, and he struggled with depression for many years, and Rick did all he could. Rick and Kay did all they could for their son. And he said... Why is it that if somebody, has, say, has a bad heart or a bad knee, we don't attach any, any stigma to it. But if someone has a bad brain, there's something chemically wrong, that we attach stigma to it. We shouldn't. So Christians, we ought not be attaching stigma to anybody who has any condition, certainly that they have no control over. And even the American, the American, American, I sound like Elvis there, even the American Psychological Association, which is... Um, politicized, to say the least, uses the word abnormal when it discusses this issue. I'm reading from their website now. And the question, the website is, what does intersex mean? And here's what they say. A variety of conditions that lead to atypical development of physical sex characteristics. Uh, uh, let me read that again. A variety of conditions that lead to atypical development of physical sex characteristics are collectively referred to as intersex conditions. These conditions can involve abnormalities of external genitals, internal reproductive organs, sex chromosomes, or sex-related hormones. Some examples included external genital, uh, genitals that cannot be easily classified as male or female, incomplete or unusual development of the internal reproductive organs, inconsistency between external genitals and the internal reproductive organs, abnormalities of the sex chromosomes, abnormal development of the testes or ovaries, or overproduction of sex-related hormones, inability of the body to respond normally to sex-related hormones. Intersex was originally, I'm still quoting from the American Psychological Association, intersex was originally a medical term that was later embraced by some intersex persons. Many experts and persons with intersex conditions have recently recommended adopting the term, quote, disorders of sex development, unquote, called DSD. They feel that term is more accurate and less stigmatizing than the term intersex. You see how even the, the medical community calls this an abnormality. 
Well, the question is, why are we trying to normalize it then? Why are we trying to tell people that they can change their physical sex? More on that after the break. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turk on the American Family Radio Network. We're back in two minutes. Don't go away. So what do you say to people who claim that there are more than two genders because some people are born intersexed? You're listening to Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network website, crossexamine.org. And uh, this is one of the many questions we're dealing with today. And I just read from the website of the American Psychological Association, and it's their intersex website. Um, And the title of the page on the website is, What Does Intersex Mean? So you can Google it and look for the APA website if you want to read that again. And as I mentioned after I read that, you notice how often the the American Psychological Association terms the intersex condition as abnormal. It's because something's interrupted. And it's because 99, something biological is interrupted. In other words, they're not biologically developed normally. It's why it's called abnormal. Again, this is not to create any any psychological or moral stigma, it's simply to point out a medical fact. And it's also considered abnormal because far more than 99% of people have fully developed male or sex or male or female sex organs. And of course, the human race could not continue if people couldn't biologically reproduce. So what do you say when someone says there are more than two genders because of this intersex condition? Well, the first question you should ask is, what do you mean by intersex? Let's see if people even understand what they mean by using the, the, the term intersex. And I would say this, look, the very fact that anyone can recognize the rare condition known as intersex proves that there are two genders. In other words, when we see that a few people may have elements of both genders, it doesn't mean that the that fixed genders don't exist because we wouldn't even be able to recognize the abnormality unless there were two fixed genders. You see the point here? That's why, by the way, when people claim there's no evidence for God, I often want to ask them, is there any evidence for gender? Because if they say no, I say, look, I can't help you with the God question then. If you're not going to recognize the obvious traits of your own body, you're probably not going to recognize that there is a being who is invisible, who created and sustains the universe. If you can't recognize what's in front of you, you're not going to recognize something you can't see. So, and by the way, um, listen to the podcast from a few weeks ago called Why Is There Evidence for Anything? Because evidence for anything presupposes an orderly universe, which implies an orderer. And we, we, we covered that in that podcast. So, so go back and listen to that podcast. Anyway, let me go back to the American Psychological Association. Note that the APA calls the intersex conditions, or intersex condi- conditions, quote, disorders of sex development, DSD. These are disorders. They're not orderly. They're disorders. And you wouldn't know that they were disorders unless you knew that there were two genders, the order of the two genders. But, of course, the transgender political movement has very little to do with intersex people. That's a diversion. Because the transgender political movement wants to promote the idea 
that it's normal that people who have perfectly functioning male or female sex organs should want surgery to change their body rather than psychiatry to change your mind. I mean, people who suffer from this condition have a psychological mismatch between their mind and their body. And the activists, the transgender activists, think that the proper treatment is to attempt to change their body rather than change their mind. Look, friends, in any other field of medicine, this would be considered malpractice. For example, if someone has anorexia, they have a psychological mismatch between their mind and their body. They think they are overweight when they are dangerously underweight. It would be malpractice to affirm in the anorexic's mind that they really are. They really are overweight and that you recommend liposuction for them if you were a doctor. No, that would be malpractice to do that. And that's what's going on here when it comes to recommending that people try and change their biology through surgery when it is impossible to do so. Here's the problem. It's considered malpractice when it comes to, say, anorexia. Why is it not considered malpractice when it comes to transgenderism or gender dysphoria? Because we're dealing with religion here, the religion of sex. And in the religion of sex, dogma trumps reason. In fact, the activists are claiming it's not just normal to want to have surgery to change your biology, which, again, is physically impossible to really change your biology. It's not just normal. It's a right that you have and that taxpayers need to pay for. Not only with tax dollars, but public shaming if you don't agree with them. Go back, by the way, and listen to the podcast from about a month ago called Exclusion in the Name of Inclusion. It was about Isabella Chow, the uh, UCAL Berkeley Christian, who is being publicly shamed and abused because she couldn't in good conscience vote with transgender activists by denying their two genders. Now, there are people who have written on this very eloquently, by the way. Ryan Anderson has written a book called When Harry Became Sally, and he has an article about a a year or so ago on the Heritage Foundation, heritage.org, Uh, The title of it is The Sex Change Revolution is Based on Ideology, Not Science. And here's what he writes to prove that. He says, never mind that according to the best studies, the ones that even transgender activists themselves cite, 80 to 95% of children with gender dysphoria will come to identify and embrace their bodily sex. And he goes on to say, never mind that 41% of people who identify as transgender will attempt suicide at some point in their lives, compared to 4.6% of the general population. You say, well, maybe the surgery will prevent them from from committing suicide. The answer is no. Uh, Ryan goes on to say this, or Anderson, Ryan Anderson goes on to say, never mind that people who have had transition surgery are 19 times more likely than average to die by suicide. 19 times. This is after the surgery, friends. Do you see why that if you truly love someone, You will not send them down a path that will hurt them. And it will hurt them to try and tell them to get this surgery. This is why Dr. Paul McHugh, a leading psychiatrist at John Hopkins University for many years, ended an article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago this way. He said, quote, sex change is biologically impossible. People who undergo sex reassignment surgery do not change from men to women or vice versa. Rather, they become feminized men or masculinized women, claiming that this is a civil rights matter and encouraging surgical intervention 
is in reality to collaborate with and promote a mental disorder, unquote. Remember, this is a, psych- a psychiatrist speaking. And it, he's using the same language, the American psychology or the American um, let me get it right, psychological association says, as I've read earlier on this program. This is not to create any stigma. This is just to, this is just to cite a medical fact. If you truly love someone, you will do everything you can to help them change their mind because they can't change their body. Transgenderism, or I should say gender dysphoria, is is treated by psychiatry. It's not treated by surgery. It doesn't solve the problem, ladies and gentlemen. And I know this is a sensitive issue for many people, but our first duty as Christians is to tell the truth. And if you truly love somebody, you'll tell them the truth, even if they don't want to hear it. Because if you tell them a falsehood and affirm them to go down a path that's going to hurt them, that's not loving. That's unloving. So you have to tell people the truth. And I hope that you believe at least we're trying to tell the truth here. You may not agree with everything we say here at crossexamine.org or everything I say, Frank Turk says, I get it. Test what I say against Scripture. Test what I say against reason. But we try and do our best to bring the truth to people in a world that seems to want to believe in error. And we do that in person quite a bit on colleges and high schools. We do it in church services. We do it in seminars. We do it via our Cross-Examine Instructor Academy where we train others to do this. We even have created an advanced Cross-Examine Instructor Academy this past year, which will probably run again in 2020. We do it via social media. We do it via video. We put out one video email a week that you can share with other people. If you want to be a part of that, go to crossexamine.org, click on subscribe, put your email address in there. We'll send you one video a week, a short video, anywhere between two and sometimes it's between one and five minutes normally. It's a Q&A video normally from a college campus that will help you uh, interact with other people and equip you to better share Christ with people in a reasonable way. Uh, and by the way, I've noticed if you send somebody a 40-minute video, they won't watch it. If you send them a four-minute Q&A video, they will watch it. That's what we try and do. So we're on, obviously, social media in addition to Facebook, like our Facebook pages, crossexamine.org, DR Frank Turk. We're on Twitter, at Frank underscore Turk. We're on YouTube. We've got, I don't know, 73,000 or so YouTube subscribers. We put up a, several videos every week up there. We're on Instagram, Pinterest, I think. <laughs> Jorge does the Pinterest. Jorge Gill, our fabulous social media director. We have a cross-examined app. We're doing TV on DirecTV, Channel 378. It's also on Roku. You can also watch it on our website for free, Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern and 1 a.m. Eastern. We're doing this radio program and podcast. We're obviously on the Internet. We're teaching online courses now. In fact, there's a special on online courses toward the uh, just to the end of the year, 20% off. Go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, and you can take these courses at a 20% discount. Why? Because we want you to be equipped And we're a 501c3 ministry. 100% of your donations go to ministry. 0% go to buildings. And we have a $20,000 matching grant. If you give up to $20,000, it'll be matched dollar for dollar. So go to crossexamine.org and click on donate. You can either send us a check, just date it. uh, Have it postmarked by December 31st. And... uh, or donate online via 
a credit card or debit card at crossexamine.org. Click on Donate. And as I say, 100% of your donations go to ministry, 0% for buildings. We need your donations because when we go to college campus, friends, we don't charge students a dime. You're sending us there to present, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist to a dark world. As I mentioned uh, last time, we had eight salvations alone just at uh, Towson University this past year. Praise be to God for that. Anyway, friends, I'm Frank Turek. Thanks for being with us in 2018. Look forward to seeing you again in 2019. God bless. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.